Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Which way is the uh, the wind blowing in the Windy City these days? Are the Blackhawks, in fact, rebuilding? Okay, well, firstly, I must say, the least favorite fun fact I have about Chicago that everyone wants to say is it's not called the Windy City because of the wind. It's because of the politics in the 1800s that would blow either way. That said... There's a little bit of a miscommunication as well going on with the Blackhawks front office <laughs> and a discord between their fans as well as their veteran players. It does appear they are rebuilding. That's what GM Stan Bowman told me. He's not afraid of the word. And when Jonathan Taze came out to The Athletic and said that's not been communicated to me, it's fascinating because Stan Bowman's like, I've been trying to communicate that to him for a year and all of the veteran players. I don't know why he said that. I'm just saying there's a giant lake, and I assume that the wind would come off the lake and hence would, oh, it's a would windy filter city. through the city. There's wind. There's, right. there's a lot. I, I see the wind right now. It's blowing that currents. But okay, good. it's the politics. Gotcha. It's always the politics. I, your piece was fascinating because it seemed like Stan wanted to say that they are rebuilding, but they're not in a rebuild. Can he, can he, can he split the atom like that when it comes to what the Blackhawks are trying to do? Yeah, and you know, I think his issue is there's just such a negative connotation with the word rebuild. It means we're tanking, we are going to tear it all down, we're going to trade all the people that you know. And that's not exactly what they're doing. What they're saying is we want to keep these veteran players. Well, frankly, we have to because we have them signed under contract for a very long time with no movement clause. Um, But we need to get more young players in the lineup. And the quote to me that stuck out, and I know it stuck out to you, is we are not good enough top to bottom to compete with the top teams in this league. They need to figure out a way to get there. And by doing that, understanding where the league is trending, you got to have an infusion of youth. Yeah, you know who should feel horrible about that? Edmonton, uh, who was eliminated <laughs> by this inferior product uh, in the qualification round of the playoffs. Will the amazing Blackhawks postseason run make our top 10 stories of the 2019-2020 mm-hmm. NHL season? Who's to say? But you're going to find out on this episode. Also, our good friend John Butchergrass stops by to talk about the legacy of Mike Doc Emmerich, who retired this week, and also a little bit about the future of college hockey and what's going to happen there. All that and more on this edition of ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And uh, this is not going to be your typical episode. We're going to do the top 10 stories. No no categories, no, uh, no puck headlines. No Phil Kessel loves hot dogs, though I encourage you to uh, check out uh, Steve Simmons' writing on Brian Burke's book, in which Steve Simmons, a man whose entire career is now defined by having made up a story about Phil Kessel buying hot dogs, calls out someone else for uh, inaccurate uh, recollections. So it's good times. Rich. Uh, Let's get to the top 10 stories of the season without further ado. Uh, Why don't you kick us off, Emily? These are, let's just first say, you know, I'm not seeing this as a countdown. I'm seeing this as a collection of 10 things. I find it very difficult to rank anything that happened before March 12th against everything that happened after March 12th. So, you know, with that in mind, I think these are just the 10 stories that define the season rather than being a traditional ranking. Would you agree? I completely agree because, quite frankly, I think it would be 
inappropriate to rank some of these because some of them are really sad and disturbing. Some of them are heartwarming. And uh, let's just use that as a transition to get to the first one I will talk about, not number 10 or number one. Um, But it was the big coaching reckoning. Yes, that happened this season. Uh, Bill Peters resigning after Akeem Alou came forward with allegations that Bill Peters used a racial slur against him when they were in the minors 10 years ago. And that just opened a can of worms. We heard other um, incidents of misconduct by Peters, specifically when he was the coach of the Carolina Hurricanes, some physical abuse while on the bench kicking players. We then heard about Mike Babcock, an incident with Mitch Marner, which quite frankly was just psychological abuse. And then what really was disturbing to me was the former Red Wings coming out, mm-hmm. Jonathan Franzen, talking about the things that he was doing back in the day to them. Um, Mark Crawford in Chicago was placed on administrative league leave. Mark Crawford was one of the guys, though, and I will give him credit. He went out and sought counseling, and he owned mm-hmm. up to it. And, and the Blackhawks, um, you know, kind of embraced that journey. And he realized, you know, I have to change. The game's changed. People change. And the way we interact with people has changed. But um, this was just a huge story. It became national news that transcended hockey. And, you know, I don't want to group this one in with it, but... Um, the stars fired their coach kind of in the middle of this, Jim yeah. Montgomery. And it was because of alcohol abuse and, and, and misconduct that he was um, doing as coach of the Dallas Stars, which, of course, led to Rick Bonus getting the promotion and leading the team all the way to the Stanley Cup final. So it was just a wild year, which made us reassess what is a good coach. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, obviously the uh, NHL investigation into Bill Peters is ongoing. Uh It'll be uh, almost an anniversary time in a couple months, so good times there. Mm. Uh, My first big story, look, every time one of the biggest names in free agency signs a significant and interesting contract, it's going to make the top 10 stories of the year. When that contract is for one year, when the team he signs with is the Buffalo Sabres, it (laughs) mandates it's got to be on this (laughs) list. Taylor Hall, $8 million one season. With the Buffalo Sabres, the most highly sought-after free agent forward on the market, everybody for the year leading up to this was like, where's Taylor Hall going to go? What long-term deal is he going to sign? Will he make his return to Alberta? Yada, yada, yada. Well, it turns out nobody wanted to pay him the money he was looking for, uh, and uh, everybody was trying to just get him for that one year, um, you know, come join our cup team. Don't you want to get your name on the cup, Taylor Hall? Taylor Hall's like, no, actually, I like money. So he goes to the Buffalo Sabres, gets that Pagula money, Maybe they become a better team, become a playoff contender with Taylor Hall skating on Jack Eichel's wing. But more to the point, Taylor Hall gets that sweet, sweet Jack Eichel uh, point boost that Jeff Skinner got to get his big old contract uh, a couple years ago. And uh, and I think it's good for Hall in the short term, looking forward to something more long term next offseason. But in the process, Kevin Adams, we had on the show recently, gets the bell of the free agent ball to come dance with him in Buffalo. This I still can't wrap my head around this. I'm gonna have to see him in a Sabres <laughs> uniform to like actually see this. Still, that it happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, I'm gonna give it a nice little heartwarming story for my next one. All right, David Ayers. Yes, that happened this season. Oh my god, um, there's no way that happened this season. <laughs> why? Yes, February no 22nd. Both of the Carolina Hurricanes starting goaltenders, James Reimer and Peter Mrazek, were injured in a game against the Maple Leafs. And if you thought Scott Foster, accountant by day, goalie by night for the Blackhawks, was a good story, um, the e-bug takes another turn because David Ayers comes in. And the best part about him is that he's a Zamboni driver, which 
then, you know, it was kind of an iffy situation. Is he or is he not a Zamboni driver? Does that just look good in a headline? I don't care. He was paid $500 for the game. Was he paid or not? I don't care. It's just a damn good story. He comes in, saves the day. The Hurricanes are just, you know, loving this energy. The, the um, Locker speech that Rod Brindamore gave oh, yeah. after the game was incredible. Um, we then get the state of North Carolina, the governor, Roy Cooper, declaring heirs, a Canadian citizen, an honorary citizen of the state of North Carolina. Raleigh named February 25th David Ayers Day. Um, it was just incredible. He made the Today Show. He did his whole media tour. Um, and the ripple effects from it are fascinating. Only recently did I learn Zach Bogosian was in Toronto that day and was supposed to have like a meeting uh, with GM Kyle Dubas. And his team was so embarrassed by what happened the night before of a Zamboni driver potentially e-bug beating his team. He canceled the meeting with Bogosian, which led him to sign with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and they won the Stanley Cup. Would the Lightning have won for not for Dave Ayers? I don't know. Who's to say? <laughs> That's right. The dominoes all fall. Man, I really wish at the time they, they had played up the uh... – the pro wrestling esque angle of whose side is he on when he came out, mm. you know, was he actually a leaf sleeper agent? Could have been really good, really good high drama. Speaking of high drama, oh my god, the year that was the Vegas Golden Knights. Let us count the ways. Keep in mind, they come off the first round defeat in the previous postseason to the San Jose Sharks in a in a, in a game in which the NHL changed the rules on how <laughs> video review is used in order to compensate for the phantom five-minute major. Um, okay, so that happens. They go into the season. They're okay for a while. They fire Gerard Gallant. My God, first coach in, in franchise history, led him to the cup final in the first year of existence. And then they go out and hire who? Oh, that's right. The hated coach of the rival Sharks, Pete DeBoer, comes over and takes over the team. Fans are conflicted. What are we supposed to think? We hate this guy. Now he's our coach. Um, the season goes on. They make a huge splash at the trade deadline by acquiring goalie Robin Lehner. Well, wait a second. They've got a goalie, Marc-Andre Fleury. Well, Fleury wasn't that good this year. Feeling the effects of the loss of his father in December, uh, not really himself, his game kind of wavering in and out all season. They bring in Lehner ostensibly to be his backup and support him. Yet by the time the postseason rolls around, Robin Lehner's your starter. Starter throughout the playoffs. This eventually led to the infamous moment when Alan Walsh, Fleury's agent, tweeted out a photo of Marc-Andre Fleury impaled by a sword with Pete DeBoer's name on it, which didn't really lead to anything other than some hilarity for all of us to view and maybe some uncomfortableness within the organization. The Golden Knights okay, get eliminated. It's an iconic photo now. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and also a meme, without question. <laughs> the Golden Knights get eliminated by the Dallas Stars in the Western Conference Final. Uh, they have another crisis of faith. What shall we do? How do we make our team better? What was our major malfunction? Well, they look across the ice and they say, hey, look at that. They've got Mar Miro Hiskinen and John Klingberg. What if we had two great defensemen? Well, now they do. They go out and sign the other gigantic prize of free agency, Alex Petrangelo of the St. Louis Blues, to a massive seven-year contract in the process to fit in his $8.8 million cap hit. they got to trade Paul Stasny to the Winnipeg Jets and trade the second most popular player on the team, Nate Schmidt, to the Vancouver Canucks to open up the cap space for Pietrangelo. As I said before in my column, the Golden Misfits, they all got haircuts, they put on ties, they're all working at the local bank. The happy days may continue for the Golden Knights, 
but the whimsical freewheeling days of this franchise are over. It is now a business, Emily. Business. And then I'm in the business of calling that an iconic photo because I will never forget in the rest of my life. (laughs) All right. I'm going to bring up a sad story for my next one. And it's quite frankly, a tragedy. This, this one breaks my heart every time I think about it. But Kobe Cave was a 25-year-old forward for the Edmonton Oilers. And this happened right in the beginning of COVID. Um, we were all kind of assessing our new realities. And he suffered a brain bleed and he died. Um, and I, you know, was really touched by how many teammates and non-teammates and just people across the hockey world were reaching out about what a special human Kobe was. And His widow, Emily, was kind enough to work with me on a story, and I got to learn more about Kobe. And the circumstances following his death are just tragic. Um, When the season was paused, they both went back to Canada. They were quarantining at the time um, at their parents' home before they could go and interact with everyone else. And Kobe just started to complain of a headache. And that headache progressed to the point where by the morning when the paramedics came, um, you know, it, it was past the point of return. Um, One of the most heart-wrenching details that Emily shared with me that one of the last calls Kobe got, because he was a player who was toggling between the AHL and NHL. He began his career in Boston. He was uh, picked up on waivers by the Oilers. He was just about to make it, and he got a call from Keith Gretzky with the Edmonton Oilers saying, when the season picks up again, you're going to be a black ace, and we're going to bring you to the bubble. And just the fact that that was one of the last conversations he had to know that he was going to be with the NHL roster and get an opportunity, um, that just crushes me. So I give Emily Cave so much credit in the world because she's been so transparent, so open about the PTSD that she has experienced. Um, They were married less than a year. Um, You know, they were incredibly beautiful couple and newlyweds. And, um, you know, all of my thoughts are going to have them and all my thoughts to her for honoring Kobe's legacy and all that she's doing there. Indeed. Yeah, it's such an incredibly powerful story um, and such a tragedy. Uh, all right, we're going to need to cleanse our souls for a second here. Uh, let's talk about one of the uh, brightest lights in the hockey business. Let's talk about a legend in the industry. Let's talk about the Mr. Rogers of hockey media, Mike Doc Emmerich, who is retiring with a guy who, in my opinion, shares a lot of traits with the broadcasting mm. great insofar as his love of hockey and everything else. Our own John Butchcross. Joining us down the line, our old friend, ESPN Zone, John Butchcross joins us. And Bucci, we wanted to reach out and get you on because you had a very heartfelt and touching message upon the retirement of one Mike Doc Emmerich. And uh, we wanted to talk to you about Doc and kind of get your uh, take on the voice of American hockey for the last, what, like 50 years. Yeah, just a really a unique person in the game. I always loved kind of the juxtaposition from the, you know, our Mr. Rogers, our hockey neighbor. But anytime there was any kind of bloodbath or fight, <laughs> he, ne- he never preached. He never went on a, a soapbox. He almost kind of quietly or, or in some way reveled in it. He enjoyed the mayhem. He enjoyed that part of the hockey. You know, he grew up with it, obviously, in the minor leagues. You see characters, especially when he started more so than today. Uh, The game was just filled with these wild, wild West characters from farms in Canada and all over the world. And he just, he never, you know, had any kind of preachy tone to his message. He just, he just described the action, even though his style 
and his personality was one of a very, you know, kind, tender person, uh, he still involved himself in all aspects of the game. And I think that's why he resonated so much to, to so many people. Bucci, it seems yesterday, like, we know that he has a Hall of Fame vocabulary, and I learned that he's in seven different Hall of Fames and counting, which is just insane <laughs> to me. Um, but he's also a Hall of Fame human being, and it just seemed that everyone had some anecdote about a time that he was kind to them or, um, you know, reached out to them or something like that. And I'm curious if you had any personal interactions with Doc that you'd want to share with our listeners. Yeah, just, you know, throughout the years, obviously the uh, the years – when I first got the ESPN, they had hockey from 96 to 04, um, my first eight years there. And so then, you know, started the covering all-star games and, and Stanley Cup finals, uh, although the Stanley Cup finals, and you know, ESPN had them, so he wasn't doing the Stanley Cup final uh, during that time. Uh, Gary Thorne and, of course, Bill Clement were. So, But I would still see him. I think he used to do maybe the international feed, maybe, or some sort of Westwood One radio. So I would see him out a lot at games and, you know, we, he had a big Pittsburgh Pirate uh, fan, and I grew up born in Pittsburgh and lived in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, for the first 18 years of my life. I was a big Pirate fan until my teenage years. Willie Stargell was my hero. My dad was a Pittsburgh Steeler season ticket holder. So I kind of, even though my parents were Boston people, so I've always had that kind of half-and-half half New England-Pittsburgh kind of sports fandom and, and overall personality, as a, as a matter of fact. And so – we would have that in common. And, and I, you know, I wrote about him in my old ESPN.com column now and then. I always just bring it back. About this. I loved <laughs> <Yeah>. his language. <laughs> I loved his language and, the word, and, and how he described the game. I just thought he was just a wonder to listen to uh, in those years and, and just, just enjoyed him, everything about him. And like I said, he just really did have an angelic quality about him. And uh, it's really cool when you come across those people. And and I don't think he ever had children, and maybe that's the secret to happiness and peace. He's not having children. <laughs> you know, it's it, he, had, he had dogs, lots of dogs. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Gary Thorne. I always found it interesting that for a lot of American hockey fans of a certain age, there's a there's a a Beatles and Stones magic and bird thing with Gary Thorne and Doc. Like Doc was a like very that. unique style, very sing songy, very radio guy doing television gary thorne was big voice announcer guy and and it was much more yep. of a different style i always found it interesting that that was the juxtaposition that people to this very day draw between those two guys yeah i, I like that stones beatles analogy because yeah no doubt someone's gonna because they're so different like you said people are going to be drawn to one of them because because the difference was so so big and yeah you know, i've always had such a love of language and, uh, and, and vocabulary and words and craftsmanship. And that's obviously what Emmerich brought. Um, but I also, you know, I also like Def Leppard and, and <laughs> I like, I like rocket. I like rock and roll and no one cut through a crowd like Gary Thorne's voice did. It was just, that's a, and when people talk about play by play, um, you know, how obviously you can't measure it. It's like art. It's, it's not a, it's not a metric. It's not a batting average. It's not a shooting percentage, but it's, uh, it's 75% voice. Like it really is. That's a, you need, that's the muscle. If you're going to be a bodybuilder, you have to have big pecs. If you're going to be a play-by-play -play guy the, the, to win the bodybuilding contest, Schwarzenegger always won because he was the biggest dude. It, you know, if you have two guys who are exactly proportioned, the bigger guy will win. And so right. same with broadcasting. If you have that voice, that's a big start. 
is having the voice. And Gary just had that voice that cut through the Civic Arena when Mario Lemieux scored. And uh, it just and so yeah, you're right. There were two different, and they were stark because it went Emmerich, Thorne, Emmerich. You know, in yep. terms of a national national voice. So they were different. That's kind of cool. And it's, I think it's good for young broadcasters out there. You be yourself. You play to your style, and both can be at the reach the top of their game. All right. This next question comes with the disclaimer that all of this is very rich for three ESPN employees to be speculating about because we do not have the rights and we want the rights. But look, Doc Emmerich owned the space as the voice of American hockey, you know, like Greg said, for nearly five decades. And now he's gone. What young broadcasters would you like to see or maybe existing broadcasters get more reps? Like, who do you like listening to? Wow, there's, there's so many good young ones nowadays. You know, I just look at, uh, you know, ESPN the last few years. We're just kind of cranking them out, you know. Um, uh, Adam Amin and Ryan Rucco, there's like, there's so many really good ones. Uh, yeah. But in terms of, you know, in, in hockey, you, you start seeing them now, you know. Um, Faust and Burke and all these young kids coming along, they're really good. And it makes sense. You know, I, I think my generation was, you know, we were the first generation who really grew up watching broadcasters as young kids. And, um, and, and so we, be, we understood broadcasting. We emulated it. We, uh, you, know, you copy it to a certain extent, just like musicians borrow, you borrow. And, and then this generation even had more broadcasters, and they went to college for it with these incredibly organized schools and systems, and they became very competitive. And so they're, the, you know, they're that next generation where they, they have so much to draw from. We, we only had a couple national voices to draw from when I grew up. You know, I didn't, I didn't have cable until I was 14. So it was ABC, CBS, NBC, you know. And uh, so it was those same guys who were on year after year forever. And uh, now there's such a broad appeal. Um, but, you know, and, and certainly on the national level, you know, John Forsland is certainly at the top of his game right now. Um, he's a guy who's great. To him. And the, yeah, just great pipes, great, real sneaky sense of humor, works with his people, works with his partners really well, seamlessly and quickly, and, and he's, you know, he's phenomenal. And, uh, you know, Kenny Albert just brings a steadiness to a broadcast um, that, and he controls his volume throughout pretty good, not a, and not a huge screamer, which is, uh, which is cool. So, yeah, it, it's deep. The, the playing field is really deep. And uh, and there's so many good hockey broadcasts, local broadcasts, production company, the whole thing. There's so many competent TV people, which is great. Like I keep saying, it's never been a better time to be a hockey fan in terms of amount of content, um, quality of broadcast, quality of video, quality of writing. It's just it's a, it's just phenomenal. Here, here, I, I, and I would not be surprised by the way. A little little announcer birds tell me that uh, to see Forsland end up as the new voice of the Tampa Bay Lightning at some point in the near future. So, Yeah, there's, a, there's an opening, and certainly if they, uh, it depends. what happens is all these teams, how much do they want to pay? Sometimes they want to go yeah. down cheap, and, and, or do they keep the established, especially if they went up, you know, now they win a cup, maybe they're thinking, like, we should keep this momentum going. You know, advertisers like it, sponsors like it, season ticket holders like it. They, they, you know, they like to have a guy that they see, and it's not that big a difference in money. We're not talking millions of dollars. You know, it's just a few extra uh, to, to get a guy like John Forsland, and um, who's who's uh, we'll still have national broadcasting you know opportunities with NBC. So uh, so yeah, it'll be good to see you know, when those when those teams open up like that when someone retires, um, like Rick Peckham, and obviously they don't retire till they're later because it's a great job. <laughs> It'll yeah. open up very much. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a huge opportunity for all kinds of broadcasters. The guy in the AHL, the guy 
uh, the young kid coming out of school and a college, you know, all kinds of people look at a job like that, go, Oh, there's my chance. There's only, yep. there's only so many of those jobs. Yep. Uh, last one for me, uh, you know, trying to figure out what all these leagues are doing in the next year is like herding cats, right? Like everybody's kind of doing a, a different thing. It's hard to really get a handle on what's going on. You have your finger usually on the pulse of the college hockey world. What's going on there? How are they handling COVID? What's what's the situation? Is is everybody on the same page or are different conferences doing different things? Yeah, that's the problem because NCAA and college is a bit disorganized and not really centrally kind of run it is they're all kind of doing their own thing you know hockey and it's even within school to school like you know i talked to a hockey east coach the other day and and they've been they've been practicing for two three weeks you know full team no problem no no covid positive test and they're kind of in a bubble because that particular school doesn't have a lot of uh, students on campus you know, another coach was practicing in pods and um and now just starting to get going and so some schools want to start playing late November league games because they're a bus, you know, it's like a hockey East is a bus conference. So they can bus around and maybe protect their kids a little bit better. Hmm. And others are, are you know, the, the Ivies are, are obviously being very conservative and, and, and not, not even thinking about playing hockey till after the new year. So yeah, it's a little bit disjointed, but I think there is a momentum to get going to playing, to figuring this out. And um, you hope you just reach a point as they, they kind of hodgepodge these schedules together that you can come up with a 16-team tournament field and have an NCAA tournament, you know, for the kids at that age. It's important for them to have a carrot to search for at, when you're young and you have time and their emotions that they deal with and different anxieties. And when you think about the future and what am I going to do with my life, it's, you know, they need, I think it's important for those young kids to have those carrots to keep them focused. And so as long as they just, that's why I want the older people to keep fostering some hope, some, you know, so obviously you want to be smart, you want to be pragmatic, but, give them that hope that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to really work hard to get this done and let's do it. All right, Pucci, last one for me. Uh, All of our internal clocks are out of whack uh, thanks to 2020, (laughs) but this is technically cottage season when GMs all get lost because it's the off season Um, and free agency settled and the draft settled. And I'm just curious, what team do you feel like made some moves in the last two or three weeks? And you're like, wow, I am so excited to see that team take the ice. That's exciting. Hmm. Wow. Uh, that's a good one. Certainly. Um, well, I mean, Toronto certainly looks like they're trying, you know, it's interesting that they understand that, that there is a, there, that hockey is a blood sport. <laughs> and at some point you need to have guys who bleed or make people bleed. And, and that there is a such thing as inspiration and playing for a teammate like Joe Thornton. And, uh, and that, that emotion is part of it. Um, there, it's a, you know, there are, it, there's numbers and there's data, but there are also heartbeats and emotions mm-hmm. and kind of figuring that, that out, that recipe out is always interesting to me. And you can see what they're doing is obviously a concerted effort uh, to do that. And, and, and to me, but in the last couple of years, it's just Vegas just getting player after player, it seems. It's like, yeah. it's amazing. They keep adding these huge marquee guys. And for, again, they, what a story with an expansion team and to get that traction right away and to finally figure out, you know, hockey and all sports, that, boy, we should probably have expansion teams be good as soon as possible and not have them rot for a decade uh, like in the past. That's really a great model, I think, for all sports going forward and for hockey and for them to be that, to, to show how they've got a hold of that market. 
and um, and become a good franchise right away, and it's not sullied in any way by constant missing that becomes a joke, whether it be the Atlanta Fames or the Atlanta Flasher, uh, Thrashers, you know, either both those, they become kind of punchlines. And for them yeah. to get that to get that grasp right away as being a, a competent, sharp, entertaining, awesome franchise, logo, whatever, that only helps the league, helps the city, helps everything. So Vegas is still kind of like almost the star of the league without that Stanley Cup yet. They really have a big – they cast a big glow on the league. Uh, because how they've operated the Cinderella story year one and just in subsequent years keep getting these big-time players and, and how they trade, how they draft. Really interesting franchise. Yeah, no pressure, Seattle. Bucci, you're the best. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody check out our boy on SportsCenter, and uh, and thanks for uh, chatting about Doc. That's uh, you, you and him have, have a certain kinship in the sense that uh, – Boundless and boundless enthusiasm for the sport that you love, and, and getting more people to uh, to like it in the process. So, uh, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Oh, Greg, Emily, and thank you for your what you guys contribute. ESPN.com has never been cooler, fresher, better than it is now. Really, what the, what what a hire Aww. you two were, and you have elevated us to a really a great status. And I hope it just keeps going forward. And I hope we get games back, and then we have you and TV, and we're just one big happy hockey family for another decade. Yeah, that'd be awesome. You're the best, Bucci. Thanks. Peace. Thanks, Bucci. All right, moving on with the countdown. My next one, also sad. We're going to bookend the Doc Emmerich talk with sad. This was also the season where Jay Bomeister collapsed on the bench. February 11th was the date. In a medical emergency due to a cardiac episode, it was a St. Louis Blues-Anaheim Ducks game suspended at a 1-1 tie with 7.50 left in the first period. The game would, event- would eventually be finished. Just a, an incredibly scary moment for a, a player that is uh, really well-liked around the league. Um, and eventually, Bo Meester had an implantable defibrillator uh, procedure placed on injury reserve. Game was made up on March 11th, but... You know, all all reports are, are that he's doing okay now, but uh, clearly, just without question, one of the scariest moments of the season to see Bo Meester collapse like that. And uh, once again, kudos to all the medical professionals that are on call for these types of moments to uh, once again uh, be right there to, to help a player in a, in a bad spot. It was a reminder that the NHL does have these incredible procedures in place in the small incident that there is a case like this. And, you know, you do have to give them credit here, so... Glad to see he's healthy and he's back around the blues. Um, although we might not see him skate on the ice anytime soon. Um, my next story is the story. It's the big story. It's <laughs> what happened right after that March 11th game. And that's the NHL season going on pause. And I'll just never forget, Greg. I was at the GM meetings in Boca Raton, Florida. It was the first week in March. And there were just starting to be some whispers like this novel coronavirus is coming to North America and how is it going to affect us? And I remember emailing Bill Daly saying, hey, and you and I meet up for 15 minutes because I just want to ask you a question. We sat. He ordered his go-to light beer. I ordered one as well. I don't think he was happy I ordered one because he didn't want me to drink with him. But that's besides the point. And I asked him, (laughs) point blank. Are you concerned that you're going to have to, or are you in a position, I think I said, um, where you would have to play games without fans or potentially pause the season? And I'll never forget what he said. I don't 
think we'll ever have to consider something that dramatic. Lo wow. and behold, less than two weeks later, something that dramatic happened. And, you know, this is something you or I have never experienced. We've had work stoppages in the NHL, but um, that's the NHL's own undoing. This is something far beyond their control. And, you know, the preface to this is we began this season with the NHL and NHLPA saying we're not opting out of the collective bargaining agreement um, ahead of time. We, we think that we can find labor peace. And the fact that that set the stage for this unprecedented event um, that was going to cause not only scheduling havoc, but financial um, distress for the entire league and the 31, soon to be 32 teams, um, that the league and the PA could work behind the scenes together and figure it out. Um, it was a strange couple months when there was no hockey. You know, guys were dispersing all over the world. Guys had different access um, to training equipment. And other guys did. Some guys just, you know, adopted their puppies and stayed at home and maybe gained the <laughs> quarantine 15. Other guys had uh, their personal trainers. I'm looking at you, Ovechkin, fly in and be in Florida with them. So um, it was a strange, weird couple months. But my next story is when the NHL went on pause because of coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, it, we could do another five hours on everything that happened during that time. Uh, two things on that. First of all, like you said, it's I, the spirit of cooperation between the players and the owners to get on the same page when it came to the CBA, to get on the same page when it came to return to play. Uh, everybody on their best behavior in the bubbles, no positive tests. Like you said, that is because they were both dealing with something thrust upon them. It is not because of one side trying to get one over on the other side or anything like that. It is the rare moment where everybody kind of comes together for a common cause. The thing I'll always remember about the timing of that was the San Jose Sharks attempting mm -hmm. to keep on playing, right? And and uh, um, right around the time of coronavirus, trying to maybe even do an empty arena thing when they got back from a road trip. And I'll never forget the one press conference that we had with the Sharks players. It was in a an auxiliary locker room in their practice facility. We in the media were at the back of the room. The Sharks players were at the front of the room. There was a good, like, 10, 11 feet between us. And I just remember being there and being like, my God, like, is this what we're going to do now? And Is that the last out, time you saw a player face-to-face? -face? Yeah, that was the last time I saw a player face-to-face. -face. And it turned out it's not what we were going to do because we just would do everything over Zoom. <laughs> because something called next... Zoom exists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, it's just funny to think back at, like, that moment where you're just like, wow, this is different. I hope this isn't how it goes. And it turns out, well, no, it didn't go that way at all. In fact, you're just going to have to do it remotely and never see these people face-to-face -face for months on end. It's crazy. Um, my next one, also crazy, Seattle. They have a <laughs> hockey team, and now they have an official name somehow – the good people of the internet willed the name Kraken into existence. That Seattle Kraken, not Krakens, Kraken, because the line from the movie is released, the Kraken, uh, is the new name of the NHL's newest franchise. I would have been fine with Sockeyes or Sockeye. I thought that was a cool name. Fish, anything fish-oriented would be pretty cool. Glad they didn't do totems. That's wrought with, pro with problems. Um Kraken's the name, and uh, they came out with the name, they came out with the, the colors, they came out with the jersey, they came out with the logo, and uh, I think everybody was real pleased with uh, the debut of the Seattle Kraken as the NHL's newest moniker. Man, like, we've talked about Vegas, and even Bucci mentioned it, um, the precedent that they set for expansion teams, not just in the NHL, but across all sports, 
And when you look at what Seattle's doing, they're, they're doing it right. Like they had such a high bar to clear, but the one guiding principle they have is they're letting fans um, dictate, you know, everything they do. And, and I think that's a winning formula to success, especially, and I hate using this phrase, in these unprecedented times. <laughs> but Greg, something that did happen in these unprecedented times was bubble hockey, a new bubble term. Hockey. It's an old term, but we repurposed it to mean something completely different. Um, again, when we talk about things that we thought were going to happen, like, oh, I don't know, that one week where we believed we were playing in North Dakota and New Hampshire uh, to resume the season, that didn't happen. Uh, the NHL wanted to go to Las Vegas, made the last-minute pivot when it saw the spike in coronavirus cases in that city as well as Nevada and said, we're going to go to Canada. Why not go to Canada? So they set up two dueling, or maybe parallel is the better word, bubbles, one in Toronto, one at Edmonton. And they told players, please, please come. Your escrow will thank you later. We need this for the viability of our sport. We've got to finish the season. And like you said earlier, everyone bought in. Um, it wasn't easy, though. And as we detailed in our story where we talked to players after they left the bubble, there, it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Um, you know, behind the scenes, I'm hearing a lot of stories now even trickle in about the mental health toll it took on guys, um, how difficult it was to be separated from their families that long, the people specifically in Edmonton who lasted as long as they did, the fact that their hotel was connected to the arena via tunnel, and there was days on end where they didn't see sun or civilization or light. Um, but they did it all for the betterment of the game, for the betterment of the league. And in the end, it was a success because there were zero positive COVID confirmed cases, which was the goal. And a Stanley Cup was awarded on the ice. And man, was it the weirdest Stanley Cup ever and the weirdest celebration ever because the Tampa Bay Lightning go and they win. And as we talked about with John Cooper on this very podcast, <laughs> yeah, I believe it was last week. They got nowhere to go. <laughs> they're sitting in the locker room until 1 a.m. because they're like, we don't want to go back to this damn hotel because we spent our last couple weeks there. Um, yeah. the, the stars are there. We don't want to rub it in their faces. Um, so all around, just a surreal experience. Bubble hockey. We all hope it's once in a lifetime, but it happened. And then they had a celebration in Tampa uh, on boats and then at a giant stadium because Florida beat COVID. As you know, it's well documented. <laughs> My last story, also from the bubble, and maybe one of the most inspiring yet surreal things I've ever seen in the National Hockey League, um, the social justice protests in the bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, and outside the bubble, too. It, it tracks back to, to May and the beginning of June when you had over 100 players and all 32 teams post messages after the killing of George Floyd. Um, Obviously, messages of varying degrees of specificity and uh, and uh, and passion, but messages all the same. Uh, in the bubbles, the the NHL knew it had to respond because other sports had certainly done their thing in acknowledging uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the social unrest that we saw all around the world in the months leading up to the restart. Uh, there were "We Skate for Black Lives" ads in the corners of the rinks. There was the videos they were playing before games that specifically said Black Lives Matter. Uh, then you had those moments like Matt Dumba wearing a Hockey Diversity Alliance shirt, giving an impassioned speech before the uh, Edmonton-Chicago game to kick off the Western Conference postseason, kneeling during the American-Canadian anthems. You obviously then had players on the Dallas Stars and Vegas Golden Knights doing the same before one of their games. Um, uh, Matt Dumba raising a fist as well uh, during these playoffs. 
then eventually following the lead of NBA players after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, the NHL uh, players rallied together and uh, requested that games be postponed. Four playoff games postponed in the NHL to follow the lead of the NBA players that got their games postponed and other players in other sports doing the same. And that led to that amazing scene where all these players of color in the Western Conference stood at the forefront of all these white players uh, at a moment of uh, racial unity, a press conference answering, answering questions about their actions and things of that nature. Just a, a really stirring scene. And, of course, the end result uh, of all of this uh, as we emerge from the bubble is the NHL has four committees. Now, these committees are not the end result of what happened in the bubble. These were always sort of in the works. But the next step of this thing is things like the Player Inclusion Committee and uh, all these uh, these other three committees looking at diversity in the sport from different aspects. And then, of course, obviously the Hockey Diversity Alliance uh, doing their own thing, not affiliated with the NHL, powered by a collection of uh, players of color that are you know playing in the league currently and, and former players. And as P.K. Subban told us last week, kind of the MLK Malcolm X vibe happening right now of two different approaches to the same problem. And uh, we'll see how those two approaches mix. But uh, listen, I've been a hockey fan all my life. Uh, I know what the demographics of the, my sport is. I, I know what the fan base of my sport looks like, according to recent polls from 538. And uh, to see a moment like this and a movement like this within hockey was something I always hoped to see and something I hope conti- I continue to see uh, beyond the uh, moments in which it's, you know, politically uh expedient to do uh, to recognize these things you pointed it out afterwards um you know when we listened back to that pk suban interview that quote is incredible malcolm x and martin luther king didn't always see eye to eye but they had an impact in their own right and i love going forward viewing the hga kind of as the resistance and that's maybe what the nhl needs because as you said this has been a long time coming and maybe they need an outside voice um, you know, a critical voice to come in um, and, and, and stir the pot. But I do think they will have an impact, continue to have an impact. And I do think these committees can have an impact. So like you said, I'm curious to see how this unfolds in the coming months. Indeed. All right. That it? That the full list? Guys, we're letting you out early. Class <laughs> is dismissed. <laughs> Hey, listen, uh, obviously with the off-season hitting, uh, ESPN and Ice is going to be a little bit more sporadic. We'll definitely drop new episodes during the off-season. And obviously, if there's any huge news, we'll uh, reconvene and do the thing. No show next week for sure. And we'll kind of give you guys the heads up on the schedule after that. Um, but thank you so much. As we often say, um, and as, as Bucci so gener- generously noted, uh, it's been a real good year for us as far as uh, traffic on the site, as far as you guys consuming our content, as far as listenership to the podcast. It's been uh, an upward trajectory in the in the years that Emily and I have, have worked together. And uh, we can't thank you enough for that. You know, this is... Greg. An, an, yes. What a humble brag. Were we saying we're the only ones who had good 2020s? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying at all. It was a horrible year. But, I mean, in context... Uh, we, we just appreciate it. You know, any, any time that we can uh, have our uh, superiors or their superiors come down the mountaintop and say, hey, you guys are doing a good job, it's, uh, it's always a good thing. Um, and so it's 
to your credit that we we get those compliments and and thank you so much for digging what we do and and telling your friends about it could not have said it better ourselves myself ourselves we just speak as one indeed uh, we, we are collective uh thanks everybody we will uh talk to you soon and um yeah uh thanks for listening and uh Thanks to producer Ryan, and thanks to John Butchergrass, and thanks to Doc Emmerich for 50 Great Years. We will talk to you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.